This episode of Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters. You've heard us mention them on the podcast before, and if you're in Fairbanks or you're going to be coming through Fairbanks for a fishing, hunting, or camping trip, it's a great place to stop and get what you need. It's a locally owned Fairbanks business that I've been shopping at since I came up here, and really it's the type of sporting goods store you would hope to find in a place like Fairbanks. They've got a ton of hunting, fishing, trapping, and camping supplies, including backpacking meals and stoves, clothing, real rain gear, good footwear, including mountain hunting boots like Loa, rubber boots like Extra Tufts and Lacrosse, and they also have a great selection of guns, ammo, shooting and hand loading supplies, and even muzzle loading stuff. Now, they also carry a wide variety of fishing and dip netting equipment to tackle just about any fish Alaska has to offer. In Century Hardware downstairs, you'll be able to find a big selection of marine, snow machine, and ATV supplies like ramps, hitches, gun boots, um, good gas jugs, not the junk you find everywhere else, and all sorts of odds and ends for your boat or anything else you could need, and of course, whatever hardware you might find yourself in need of. In fact, it's one of those stores that you'll usually end up leaving with more than you planned on buying because they're really good at finding and stocking things that you just didn't realize you needed until you saw them. Frontier Outfitters is located in the Gavora Mall on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, as well as Century Hardware out in North Pole. It's a great store, so next time you're gearing up, get on down there and tell them you heard about it on Tundra Talk. That's how you do it. All right, welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel. Very excited to sit down today with uh, with a man that's kind of been there and done that around this part of the country anyway, uh, former master guide, uh, longtime wildland firefighter, Mr. Pete Buse. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Pete. Glad to talk with you. Now, I guess uh, with any new guest, I like especially one especially like yourself, I'd um, kind of like to hear, you know, it, like I was just mentioned, I don't even know where to start sometimes because you kind of, like I said, been there and done that. But uh, I guess first is first is uh, first things first. Why don't you uh, why don't you tell me, you know, part of your story, you know, how did you were you born up here or, or transplant and where, you know, what's your background? And, and I um, uh, I had the distinct disadvantage of being uh, born and raised in New Jersey <laughs> and um, my uh my dad was a city guy from New York City, uh, but my mom was a country veterinarian. And she came from a long line of people that have been in that county in New Jersey uh, since before the American Revolution. And um, she taught me how to shoot and started me out hunting. And then a teacher took me under his wing later on and uh, because I had such an affinity for trapping and hunting. And... Uh, well, my mom was busy inoculating dogs and patching up horses and stuff like that. So, um, and I, and I was in Boy Scouts and 4-H. And in fact, in 4-H, I got my uh, first taste of um, monkeying around with forestry. And I decided at about seventh grade that I uh, was going to be a forester for the rest of my mm-hmm. life, which had some serious economic problems. Uh, problems but uh it was a it was a fun career but i ended up uh going to forestry school at uh syracuse the new york state college of environmental science and forestry and uh syracuse university i got a couple degrees one in biology and one in forestry 
And then um, on the day I graduated from uh, the forestry school, I drove home to northern New Jersey, and in the mailbox, to my surprise, was um, a draft notice said that my friends and neighbors had chosen me to help save the world for democracy and that I would report on such and such a date. And I did, and I went through my basic training and and, uh, did AIT in South Carolina and was in a uh, formation there. And after being highly trained as an infantry soldier, which is basically eight weeks of learning how to duck, (laughs) and um, (laughs) the... uh, the first sergeant says, is there anybody in this formation that can type? And three of us who had learned by that time that generally in the, in the Army, at least in basic training, it generally doesn't – it's not a good idea to volunteer for yeah, stuff. That's what I you know, think. Who's, who's got a pocket knife and two guys raise their hand and say, well, you've got KP. Yeah. But <laughs> typing sound rel- relatively innocuous, and I figured I might have to type something up for them. But the three of us that raised our hands in that formation in South Carolina um, got sent to Fairbanks, Alaska, to Fort Wainwright, oh. and the rest of the class went to Vietnam. So I got my prayer rug out, said a little prayer to my 10th grade typing teacher, yeah. and I typed with a vengeance. Well, that was a, so pretty, that's, that was a pretty rare skill back yeah, in those days, wasn't it? It was. Guys, guys didn't type much. Yeah, but they they wanted infantry soldiers who could double as clerk typists, and yeah. so that's how I ended up here. So I did my time in the army and um, and got out. And um, when I, at first, I was going to make a million dollars guiding in the spring and the fall, and fighting fire in the summer, and trapping in the winter. That lasted less than a year when um, our first child was born, and neither one of us had any insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to work for uh, Alaska Fire Service for a little while, then later on worked for the state of Alaska, and I retired after uh, a little over thirty years with the uh, with the state of Alaska as a forester and land management officer. Um, I retired in 2004. Um, I took early retirement um, on purpose because I had things I had on my bucket list that I wanted to do um, before I went over warranty physically. Mm-hmm. Now, people are listening, can't see me, and, and they don't know that I'm a tall, fat man now. <laughs> At the time, I was a tall, thin man. I weighed 180 pounds till I was about 43, and that's when things started going uh, uh, haywire. But um, I I really enjoyed it here, and I couldn't see any reason uh, right off the bat to go back to New Jersey. Um, I got involved in the outdoor community in, in Fairbanks, and... Um, Helped start the Alaska Trappers Association, and um, in 1975, I began guiding. Mm-hmm. I went with some other uh, friends of mine out on the Alaska Peninsula and bumped into uh, some people who were uh, uh, on guided hunts out there and talked to a uh, an outfitter, uh, a fellow by the name of Red Beeman from Chugiak, Alaska, and Red was kind of impressed because we were, you know, four raggedy ass local guys in a in a tent on the Alaska Peninsula, and we three out of the four of us had brown bears, and he was in a camp with seven registered and assistant guides and seven clients, and they only had one. <laughs> so 
back in Cole Bay when we bumped into him again, um, and he was working for a different outfitter at the time, but was starting up his own business. And he said, if any, if any of you guys would be interested in coming to work as a packer and then maybe get an assistant guide license, he'd, you know, he'd hire us. And we all said, yeah, 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 we'd like to do that. But, um, I was I was the only one that actually did it. I I worked for Red for several years, including after I was a registered guide. Mm-hmm. I just worked for him uh, uh, because I had at the time no interest in setting up my own business. But I finally succumbed to uh, thinking I was an outfitter, not just a guide. Oh, and and, and I also I worked for some other uh, guides. Uh, Ken Fanning here in town. I worked for Leon Francisco on Kodiak. Um, I, I worked for some other guides, got an idea of how to do it and, um, and and how to do it right. There are guides you can work for and learn how not to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I realized that more now. I knew it sort of intuitively then. But um, – and soon thereafter, I, I – um, I was uh, appointed to the Guide Licensing and Control Board, and I got a, a bigger dose of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. I, I served a couple of terms on the Guide Licensing and Control Board. I, I worked on the governor's um, uh, task force on guiding in game when there became some confusion over who was an outfitter and who was a guide in Alaska. Uh, so I, I was on that task force for a couple of years, and then out of that came the guide licensing uh, uh, board, now known as the uh, Big Game Commercial Services Board. Okay. I served two or three terms on that and then had enough of that for a while and went on about my business. But then um, somehow Governor Dunleavy decided I'd be the perfect guy to put back on that uh, here a year ago, and I'm and I'm back on it. So uh, that's my... Uh, that's my guiding stuff. I, I, I was licensed as a master guide for many years. I was licensed in um, almost all the units in Alaska. Every, pretty much everything except Southeast. I didn't have any, any uh, burning desire to uh, be wet any more than I was working yeah. in the mountains <laughs> in the interior. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's uh, and that you know you you, you know you, you gloss over that there. It's a lot more a lot more involved you know you say getting your you know certified in all the different units it's more involved than it sounds like from what i from what and, i gather for other guys you know that's a big you know it's a lot of time and energy so so we're talking i think we're talking about a lot of a lot of experience and hardships and stories you know in that you know at in that that time frame i will grant you that it's more difficult now and that's and that's part of why i quit um, it was getting more complicated, mm-hmm. a lot more paperwork, a lot more expense. And when that stuff started creeping up on me, uh, I got to the point where I said to myself one day, you know what? I'm just not having that much fun doing it anymore. I'm laying out a bunch of money, got a bunch of headaches. And, uh, and so I just, I decided to, uh, to quit and I, and I don't I, I really enjoyed it I met a lot of really cool people when I had a guide license I was trading hunts with uh, other outfitters all over the world mm-hmm. um, I had a grand time and I don't I don't regret oh, but maybe one or two clients one or two trips but um, but I I had a I had a good time I'm glad I did it and I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore yeah <laughs> well it seems like any you know 
any guides I know, it's the, they enjoy it, but also you're giving up a lot of your own personal time and and interest to you know in the interest of helping helping other folks out. Um, was there? Do you have? Did you have any particular favorite? favorite hunts you that that you guided or as far as like species or areas you know anything that you you really looked forward to more than the rest or i um i always specialized in sheep and and grizzlies i i like working in the mountains i like being in the mountains mm-hmm. and those are the those are the species that worked and i i guided for both those things both uh both in the alaska range and later on in the in the brooks range um, I, uh, and I mean, brown bear is different than hunting grizzlies, but I, I enjoyed hunting on Kodiak. Um, but I, but I prefer being in the, in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what I, th- the thing that comes to mind for me is how far the equipment's come since back then, you know, I mean, some, some of us like to think we're tough now <laughs> back in the old days, you know, I mean, you just, was it because you just didn't know didn't know any better because that's what you had to do, had to work with you know some of my uncle's stories and and you know other guys that have been around the block a time or two stories is pretty pretty incredible the things that you guys were able to to do um, just to do with what you had back in those days. Yeah, I don't, you know I don't think of myself as ancient, but then I get to thinking what the differences are between. Um guiding today and and guiding even when i started which is not that not that long ago you know pushing 50 years but um you know back back in those days somebody flew us in dumped us out and we hunted on foot with no camo no garmin in reach no no uh nothing but smoke signals and nobody to see them yeah and you know if if we got hurt like i did in 1979 uh by that time we had a radio but um uh i mean it it was tough i mean you you packed everything to where an airplane could land and there was there you know the four wheelers weren't around there wasn't even three wheelers um you hunted in wool with Helly Hansen on the on the outside, and somehow killed game without wearing Sitka or Gore-Tex or <laughs> anything else. Yeah, I've definitely got my own feelings on the Gore-Tex as far as rain gear goes. I'm a Helly Helly Hansen guy, but I don't need to beat that that horse to death. Um, what what happened, if you don't mind me asking, on when you got hurt? Because I mean that was. <laughs> Like I said, you know, it still can be dangerous nowadays, but we've got a lot more fallbacks and and ways to get help than than you guys did back then. Uh, yeah, it was the only time I've ever been medevaced. Um, we we were hunting over in in Unit Nineteen, uh, about ninety miles out of McGrath in the in the Alaska Range, and um, uh, Red's son was uh, going to come in that winter and trap from the camp that we had there. And so I was just finishing up. Actually, I had a, a friend with me. Uh, 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 it, well, it was the teacher that had been my mentor back in New Jersey. Mm. And I had finally gotten established to the point where I said, come on up and we'll shoot a caribou. I didn't think he was going to shoot a Boone and Crocker caribou, but that's the way it worked <laughs> out. But we were back in camp working on that cape and stuff. And um, Eric uh, uh, was going to fly out that day, the uh, son of the outfitter with um, his uh, dog team and his supplies for the winter. Well, that was two airplanes. 
And the first airplane was a, a 185 on wheels with Eric and six stinking puking sled dogs that didn't enjoy flying <laughs> and a belly pod full of traps. And it was pretty heavy. Yeah. And so he tried to land just so he had maximum amount of strip. And he ended up putting his tail wheel into the willows. And it ripped the tail wheel off the 185, oh. which made it a little exciting to try and steer down the rest of the strip. And it <laughs> kind of careened off to the side. And and uh, we had seen the thing go flying. through. Well, we saw some part go flying through the air. We didn't know what it was. We figured, well, they were down and they probably weren't going to cartwheel over. So it's all good. We'll figure out what it was later. So we raced over there, and there was it was just the forks dragging in the gravel instead of a, a wheel. But we grabbed the six puking sled dogs and uh, Eric out and slung the traps over to the side. And then we pushed that airplane off to the side because there was a 206 behind them that, at whatever that cost an hour, was yeah. circling, waiting for us to get to 185 off of the off the strip. Well, we tied those dogs out in the in the willow there and. Uh, got the 206 uh unloaded and went back in the went back in the cabin and, and bullshitted for a while well maybe a couple of days and we got feeling a little sorry for those dogs because it was snow and rain and everything out there so well, we, we had to move them back in the spruce well they'd had a couple of days to get over their uh airplane ride and um like sled dogs everywhere they were raring to go after that much mm-hmm. that much rest and we needed the gang chain that they were on. We needed to tie the up over in the woods. So we either had to figure out some way to tie them up in the interim and move the chain. We figured, now nah, we'll just move all six dogs at once on the gang chain. Oh. <laughs> and in retrospect, that was not a, a, a terrific decision. Um, Eric got on the front, my, uh, client my mentor got in the middle and like an idiot i got on the back end took a couple of loops around my wrist with the with the cable and when somebody said let's go which are magic words to sled dogs they dug in and took off the other two guys just let go but i had the thing wrapped around my wrist and i flew through the air about 10 feet and came down on the point of my left shoulder and it dislocated my shoulder but most of the time when you dislocate a shoulder it it just goes back in it hurts like hell for six months mm-hmm. this one did not go back into the socket it went back in, up underneath the socket oh. a, a real traumatic dislocation and so eventually after i don't know they drug me 20 25 feet or so the uh the cable came off my wrist and the dogs went to wherever they were going and um and I just laid there looking up at snow, and um, and uh, the guys came running over, and um, I put my arm up to my shoulder, and where there should have been a bump, there was a depression, and I knew something was terribly uh, wrong. That and the pain was, a, we, in the business, we call that a clue. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, my, my friend Don, who had come from Florida, uh, said, well, he had seen, he, he's a, he was a, a boat captain in Florida. He had seen a, a doctor reduce a, a dislocation like that. He had watched him do it on the dock where some deckhand was trying to hand up a, a, a boat motor and 
you know, his his uh, arm come out of the socket. And um, so he uh, uh, he was the finest medical help obtainable. And um, and so uh, what he decided he would do was to uh, plant his foot in the middle of my chest, grab onto my lower arm, and twist that rascal until it went back in, oh. which he did. But I kind of missed the second half of that. I, I just I passed out. Yeah, it it was really bad. Um, I passed out. When I came to, they were, you know, fanning on me and getting ready to drag me in the cabin and that kind of stuff. But I, I laid around that camp for two and a half days with nothing but uh, booze and aspirin for painkiller because the weather was bad. And, mm-hmm. and finally, a, a medevac came in and picked me up and took me out. Boy, <laughs> that sounds like, like it hurts. Yeah, as you, as you were starting to... It hurts just thinking about <laughs> yeah, it. I was... Uh, yeah, as I was starting to catch the drift of where you where you were going with that, it just made me think. I mean, probably some of the most sound advice I'd been given before, you know, starting to bang around out in the sticks is just there's so many things that can hurt you. And, you know, I'll still very often catch myself about to do something and think, should I really do that? Yeah, because if I mean it's it, you know when you're working in the yard and something goes gunny sack, it's it's not the end of the world. Out there, it might very well be. Oh yeah, for sure. That's simple. Yeah, boy, that's nuts. So was that the injury you were telling me about earlier before we started recording that kind of ended your your bow hunting? That was that was pretty much the end of my uh, bow hunting as such. I mean, I'm I'm a regular member of Pope and Young. I've I've done a fair amount of bow hunting, but that was. I mean, it was 18 months before I could lay on my back and raise my arm oh, up, wow. uh, 90 degrees from the from the floor. So uh, the the chances of me shooting a heavy enough bow and being able to practice enough to shoot responsibly is a thing of the past. So I I don't you know I just don't do much yeah. bow hunting anymore. But that even then uh, that was kind of so you were you guys had they even come out with compounds. Back then, you still shooting recurves and wood arrows or stuff like uh, uh, that? Barely. I I guided a guy for a grizzly in 1975 who had a Jennings with a Model T mm-hmm. uh, uh, compound, one of, the, one of the first compounds ever. So I had seen compounds, and it took me 10 or 15 years before I even tried it. And, and now I, I have my own compound bow and I, you know, I put in for the cow permits around Fairbanks and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I just don't do the, the bow hunting that I did it at one time. Yeah. Now, as far as guiding bow hunters back then, that was probably quite a bit less common than nowadays. Like what, what did you think like the first bow hunter you got that wanted to shoot a grizzly bear with that thing. Well, I, I mean, I was a bow hunter myself, so I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't think, uh, uh, twice about it. Um, red booked the guy and, um, but not without consulting me, said, I don't want a guy to bow hunter for grizzly. I said, well, I'll, I'll take him. And, um, and this guy was, uh, just a sterling individual, accurate i mean he was shooting the heads off ptarmigan around camp and everything so pretty soon red was comfortable with it too but um and and he did a grand job of killing his grizzly with a shot the thing and it ran down the hill instead of over us everybody was happy yeah nice yeah that's pretty cool and you were uh talking that guy was that they flew the sled dogs in there was trapping with them did you ever do much trapping off sled dog with sled dog team 
I did. I uh, uh, while I was living here in town, uh, I only worked seasonally for BLM in the state for the first few years, so I had to winter off to to trap. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I trapped about eighty miles of line on the uh, Tanana Flats, and uh, so for, I guess fifteen or sixteen years I trapped with a with a dog team. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. That's that's something that I've I was always been a little perplexed about. Like, what did you do to keep your dogs from getting caught? You know, if you're making wolf sets or. You know, you're probably not setting 114s in the middle of the in the middle of the trail that you're running. I would assume. No, you. I mean, you have to have to design your sets to accommodate. I mean, you don't want dogs veering off into a lynx cubby, even. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. you aren't. I mean, you don't use trail sets for wolves most of the time. If you do, it's only a one-shot deal because you make it off the back of the sled, yeah. and then the next time you stop short of mm-hmm. of that to move that trap out of the way but you still catch one or two wolves a winter like that without uh without catching your dogs yeah well and i and in some ways i imagine you know running dog teams for trapping wolves would be a little bit more quite a bit more attractive than using a using a snow machine because they'll you know i've heard lots of stories of wolves wolves following dog teams yep. and you know it's just a different ball game from a lot what I've of a lot of people don't don't even think about that but i learned uh by being observant and finally getting it through my head in the places where i stopped and rested the dogs and they would roll in the snow and there'd be brown snow there'd be yellow snow there'd be places where they where they beat the beat the snow down where Mm -hmm. i rested them when wolves came through they would spend an inordinate amount of time investigating that spot yeah and so even after I switched to using a snow machine, I used what I affectionately referred to as a resting dog team set. I would take snowshoes and beat down the snow. I would bring a bag of yellow snow and dog poop with me and distribute it around, and then I'd sling four or five number nines in there and await further developments. Yeah, no, it it works really well. Well, and that's in it. You know, <laughs> now that you mention that, I think that sets in that in the wolf trapping manual that ATA. Yeah, well, the, I'll give you a good idea why it's in there because <laughs> I edited. I edited <laughs> that's that. That's right. Book. I, <laughs> yep. So it's been a while since I looked at it. So proper credit, proper proper credit where credits due. But uh, yeah, well, there's a lot of lot of really smart. Wolf Trappers contributed to that book. I just basically put it all together. Yeah. No, that was, uh, and that's for, as far as trapping wolves, it's a, you know, I don't think, I can't fully appreciate the amount of information and experimentation and and just years of experience it took to to figure all that stuff out. Because there's some pretty ingenious, ingenious sets and, you know, those of you guys that really figured out how to get them good. There's a lot of old people wrote stuff for that book. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing to remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Paul Kerstetter from Up to Good Pasture and Pete Shepard over, over in McGrath, Ken Deardorff in McGrath. Guys guys have been trapping wolves for a long, long time. And, um, and they were really generous in sharing information. I mean, if... If I had had that book to read when I first came into the country, didn't have to make a bunch of mistakes and learn stuff on my own, man, I I might be rich now. Yeah, I? <laughs> yeah man, it's a 
I tell I tell people, you know, at least in my experience, wolf trapping is an exercise in frustration a lot of the times. But they are definitely smart critters. Did you ever have some that were just like, just the wolf, you figured were the same ones that you just couldn't catch? Crazy smart wolves. Um, I, th- I think the story is in that book. Um, but over here on the Salt Jacket Slough south of town, I... I commonly made urine post sets where there'd be a stob of wood sticking up out of the ice at an angle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every wolf that went by would lift their leg on that thing and, and scent mark it. And so when I saw a good, you know, three or four inch stob like that, especially one that had pee on it already, I would set them. And um, so uh, one day I was coming up the salt jacket and and some wolf tracks came in from one side, hopped onto the snow machine trail, and proceeded on. And and I'm thinking, well, within a couple of miles, I've got a set. And I don't remember what it was. It may have been a, you know, an old kill that I had snared up or something. But I'm feeling pretty good about this. But before we got to that set, there was a place where there was a stob sticking out of the ice like that that I had not set i had not touched it there was no trap and those wolves came around that bend saw that stop were so used to how i did business that when they saw that stop they jumped off the trail went around came Hmm. back in 20 yards the other side of it and and kept going there was no trap there there was nothing for them to discern they just knew how i operated more than i knew how they operated wow that's some pretty scary smart wolves yeah no and i i mean even even in my limited experience doing it a lot of times if you you know you hang one up out of a Pat, you know, you hang up one of the pups or something in a, a certain set in a certain spot. They will not go there again, at least that year. You know, it's it's amazing the stuff they can remember. If something's slightly out of place, you know, it, it just blows my mind to think of what's going through their mind. Conversely, they're... if you if you if the first wolf that you take at a set is uh, an adult male or an adult female. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, any of the younger wolves in that pack will come back and that's get what, caught the next time. Yeah, and that's what I've heard too. But it's like one of the younger ones, and then the the rest of them steer them clear of it. It only, only works one way. The other way, it doesn't work. Yep. <laughs> no, there's a lot of a lot of little tricks, and, and it's just amazing. Amaz- it blows my mind just thinking of all the, the information and, and knowledge some guys possess for for catching wolves and uh there's a lot of al- that. always something more to learn and you know never think that you know it all but uh if i was going to start out again the first thing i'd do was pay the 25 bucks for that book yeah no and i don't get any commission on it <laughs> yeah no it's 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 just a great amount amount of information can definitely cut the learning curve even if you pick up pick out just a few a few you know good go-to sets for to use it's it's pretty incredible. I always thought that one uh, was it Dick Fueling that did the one where he basically made a snare on a drag because the the wolves running his trail would out in an open area. Yep, because they're more relaxed when they can see. Yep. And, and that goes for fox and coyotes, all the all the canids. But uh, yeah, he's he's had pretty good luck with that. Yeah, I think the, all his hardware was painted white and and 
stake in this snare so it's just a snare hanging out in the trail in the middle of a wide open clearing (laughs) it's pretty incredible i've heard of guys catching doing good on them on just a single alder or if it's a spot where they've been they've been pissing just or circling around just a a single snare off (laughs) off one alder (laughs) out in the middle of the open well, uh, uh, probably the couple things that I've learned that are most important about wolves, other than don't underestimate them, is don't be afraid to experiment. Yeah, and um, and just keep your gears absolutely as clean as you as you can. But I mean, you can capitalize on uh, you know if you've got something dirty, um, you're going going down a trail. Put a wall of snares on each side, and then right before that, where that wall is. Just drop an old dirty glove in the in the trail, mm-hmm. and they'll say, "Oh man, we don't want to go by that." And they go around it and get caught in a wall of snare. There's all yeah. kinds of stuff like that. The, it seems like there's a lot of of trying to use their spookiness to your advantage by mis by directing them where you want them to go. You know, because all whether it's a piece of flagging on the you know off a log on a bend of a river or something that they they can see from a ways away and don't like and direct them where you want them to go it's pretty some of that stuff's pretty ingenious and time consuming to to put out all those sets but i uh, i i shared my uh, probably my biggest secret about trapping wolves in that in that book told about um, i went out china hot springs road uh, years and years ago and a guy had a drum full of 114s and uh, man, I was green with envy, and I was also poor. There wasn't much I could do about it. But I, I ended up buying three or f- three or four of them. But um, I, he had pictures in his in his shed there of some pretty impressive wolf catches. And so, being green myself, I said to him, "I said, what's the secret of catching wolves?" And he looked me right in the eye and he said, "Put the trap where the wolf is going to step." <laughs> oh, well, shit, everybody knows that. But uh, it took me about four or five years, but I figured out that w- what he meant. And that yeah. was, if you become a student of wolf behavior and know or at least have a good idea of how wolves are going to behave and or, or and thus where they're going to go, and you put the trap there before they get there, you're going gonna to catch more wolves. Now, that was before... That was before we commonly started using snares for wolves. Mm-hmm. Back when everybody was using 114s, um, there was a lot less wolves caught. Yeah. Well, in you're reading some of the books, you know, like the Frank, that book about Frank Glasser, and, you know, and he talked about using some snares and, some, you know, trying to trap, but due to the lack of mobility that, you know, they just seem to have a hard time. That's what they poisoned everything back, back in those days. But, uh, yeah, snares, snares were not common for taking wolves, not really common for a long time. The, the old guys did a lot of snare work around dens when they were denning in the summer. Uh, Paul Kerstetter talks about snaring 17 at a lick in the upper good pastures. Oh, wow. One, uh, one time. Um, and, uh, but l- later, later on, snares became a lot more common. And frankly, you don't have to be as smart about wolves if you got a lot of snares. Mm-hmm. It, it, covers up a lot of inadequacies if you if you can hang a lot of snares 
there are some problems with it. One of the reasons the old guys didn't use them was because they didn't want to pack frozen wolves all over the countryside. Yeah, and that is a, an they, issue. <laughs> they liked catching them in, in traps so they could skin them while they were warm and just pack the hide. Mm-hmm. For snow machines, even when they were dogs, if you caught two or three wolves, you're not going to sling two or three wolves on a on a frozen wolves on a sled and, no. and mush off home without significant uh, work for your dogs. Um, so they liked catching them in traps so that they could skin them and just, just take the hides home. But later on, that was not, not such a problem. Yeah. No, that mean, even, even nowadays trout, you know, with, with all the, the fancy stuff we've got now traveling with frozen wolves or wolverines or martin or anything like that's where you know doing i skinned a bunch for for uh, one of the fur buyers in town for several years and that's the most damage i saw was was from frozen critters bouncing around in a sled or a box or or something so it definitely presents its challenge and i had never really thought about it like that but it makes makes total sense that they'd want to be able to just peel them while they're fresh and and move on yep yep yeah, new guys ruin a lot of ruin a lot of fur. Re- reduce the the price of it anyway by just throwing the thing in the sled and and going down the trail. Martin, in particular, you know that that hair breaks so easy, and um, you know you got to wrap that stuff up. Take care of it. You know you killed something. You got a responsibility to the beast to get the most out. Yeah, of it. well, and stuff like Martin. You know, if you throw three or four of them in a in a box, you know, a couple claws doesn't. They don't have to be bouncing hard just a little bit of movement can you know you'll you'll see hair getting pulled out in the back you know it doesn't take much to ruin critters like that and uh yeah there's there's definitely always always stuff to learn on that well um and i'm trying to do the math when when you were getting guided was that kind of back in the getting going guiding that kind of in that big boom of 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 moose and caribou and sheep, you know, back in the, the late sixties or so when they, you know, as y'all, y'all is here and what I'm getting at, I guess, is everyone always says the old days. And, you know, I guess what, you know, what was Fairbanks and the hunting around here like back then? And, you know, how do you see it has changed? I mean, I mean, I even see, see quite a bit of change. It seems like in the short time I've been, been banging around. Well, the the most obvious thing is the uh, you know how how fewer moose and caribou we have um, back um, back then. We had a, a moose season in twenty um, A that started the uh, in twenty, not just twenty A, started August twentieth and run till the end of November. Wow! And um, and th- there was at at first. There was plenty of moose. Yeah, <laughs> but then they had this uh, had this thing called the Alaska Pipeline came to town, and um, with it came a lot of people that wanted to shoot moose and a lot of military buildup, and 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 pretty soon there was too many people going to twenty eight to to shoot moose, and we were running out of as you say the heyday was the was the sixties, and but the, the those heydays were the result of federal predator control yeah and that's why we had high uh, high numbers high density of of large ungulates so about the time we started uh, sending a lot more people to the field 
in conjunction with the fact that the wolves were coming back, all of a sudden things started going into crapper. Yeah. And um and so we you know, we had some had some problems. I mean when I was first on the guide licensing and control board, we were still taking licenses from people who were hunting like it was the sixties. Mm-hmm. You know, super cub and bears and, and that kind of stuff and, and the courts and put a lot of people like that in jail and the guide board jerked a lot of uh, uh, licenses, and we started getting a hold of it. Then the guiding industry kind of kind of had problems because there was no statutory definition of outfitter. Oh. And so we had a, a bunch of people who uh, would uh, tell uh, the troopers in fishing game and the guide board, well, we're not guiding, we're just outfitting. And, and they were they were out in the field furnishing services, but uh, they weren't actually. Well, some of them were, but they weren't supposed to be taking a guy by the hand and saying shoot that one. Mm-hmm. But they were doing every everything but that. Yeah. And um, and then uh, and a lot of them were uh, using aircraft. And they would, uh, and then they'd tell the FAA, "Well, I don't need a Part One Thirty Five Air Taxi license because I'm doing this incidental to my outfitting business." Mm. So it w- it was a mess, and that's that's why we ended up having the uh, Governor Cooper's uh, task force on guiding and game, and we got together guides and native landowners and biologists and even some anti-hunting people and all got together and decided we needed to do things a little differently. And out of that came uh, legislative changes, statutory changes that defined what the rest of the world called an outfitter was what we were calling a guide. Gotcha. But then we we came out of it with registered guides, assistant guides, class A assistants, and ultimately master guide was added after the after the fact. There there were still a few of us who were master guides at at that time from the old system, but one of the times that board had been sunset they didn't issue any more master guide licenses. There was no no way to do that. That had to be had to be a whole new law. And, I see. Uh, and what what did it take to get your master guide license? Oh, uh, it was a, it was a paperwork exercise. I mean, you oh. had to have been a pretty much a little tin Jesus and not get arrested for anything yeah. for like twenty five years, yeah, uh, or whatever the magic number was. I don't I don't remember. Um, and provide uh, you provided a list to the Department of Commerce of all the people you guided, and you and um, and they sent them letters asking, you know, whether they lived through the experience and that sort of thing, and would they recommend you? And uh, I didn't, I didn't have any trouble meeting those uh, uh, requirements. That you know, a master guy can't do anything that a registered guy can't do. Yeah. It just looks better on your resume. Yeah, kind of like a. But I, I was I was proud of that. Uh, you yeah. know, now they're handing out guide licenses with like uh, five or six digits on them, and I had a two-digit master guide license. That's pretty oh, proud wow. of that. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. <laughs> it it makes a statement, and the statement is, "Well, that guy's old." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, did you have any uh, any real? Uh, are there any hunts that like really stick out in your mind? Like, man, good or bad. Both, <laughs> both, because because both can be equally entertaining. <laughs> I I had a real a real grand time 
one time uh, uh, in the, in the Brooks Range, having a guy uh, shoot a a uh, little over forty forty three inch sheep Whew. that um, no nobody knew was there, including me. Um, uh, that 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 was a lot of fun. Um, probably the the worst guided hunt I was ever on was my first one right um, before I guided the uh, the old bow hunter with the Model T for a grizzly bear, had two guys um, from from back east who were not fun to guide. And um, one um, one morning the, the weather was real bad and, and um, they started shouting and I went over and asked them what they wanted. Well, they wanted more wood. We had these tent platforms were uh, plywood, build up four or five rounds of logs and then a tent frame over that and a wall tent pulled down over it and um they were nice they had bunks built into them they had a wood stove and a you know a dresser and chairs and a mirror and, uh, and it was like going to a hotel well and those platforms because a lot of the ground I think people a lot of people don't if you've never been out and a lot of that ground is just sopping wet and, ah, this this and was nasty. on gravel so it wasn't, oh. it wasn't the end of the world but yeah, this was pretty nice i mean there was rugs in there for god's oh, sake oh man <laughs> but they're they're complaining that they don't have enough firewood so i grabbed an armload of split wood and went over and i knocked on oh they had a wooden door on them too and windows oh, built into the back in the in the front and i i, I knocked on the door and they opened the door and i uh, brought the wood in and set it down by the fire and and um and i looked over and, and the guy had the damper was open on the stove and the vent was open on the front and of course the air is rushing through the thing all the heat's going up the chimney and they're going through the wood like grant took richmond and and um uh, so I said, well, you know, if you just shut this damper, I put some wood in. I said, if you just shut this damper and then close this uh, vent like this, um, I said, uh, you won't burn as much wood and you'll get more heat out of that, uh, out of that stove. Cause it, you know, the top of the stove pipe was red and it was jumping around and, but inside they were running out of wood. Yeah. And I turned around and they were brothers. The, uh, the older brother had picked up a, uh, a loaded 44 off the top of the dresser and poked it up under my chin and huh. explained to me that um uh he had asked for wood not a lesson on how to use a stove and next time he asked for wood just bring him wood so i said yes sir and left and um i uh i went over and, and told red and he got kind of excited about that i think he just want to kill a guy but uh, you know there would have been a lot of paperwork <laughs> yeah. to go with that and so when they came over for breakfast, he sent the other guide over. He snuck in there and took all their firearms, hid them out in the woods, and, and they about crapped over that. But um, we uh, we called two airplanes from McGrath, and they come and they picked those guys up. And on the second airplane, we sent their firearms with them and, um, and uh, never had to look at them again. But, Boy, um, yeah, I guess that would be a memorable about, about, story. <laughs> about cured me of wanting to be a guide. Yeah, well, that was right. You said that was the first... That's the absolute first oh, guided man. hunt that I was ever on. I said, yeah, I might not, might not be as interested in this as I originally thought. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's some of the stories I've heard, you know, and by far most of them seem to be very positive or guys wouldn't stay, guys yeah. wouldn't stay in it, obviously, but boy, you sure well, get so, a colorful. So much of it is rewarding. You know, I took a, took a guy in a wheelchair and built a ramp into a tree stand to shoot a black bear. Oh, awesome. I mean, just a, a. Ironically, the guy the guy had broken his back, falling out of a you know a climbing stand oh, back man. east someplace hunting deer, and 
But yeah, that and um, uh, you know, guiding kids to their first animals and and that sort of thing, and uh, you know, helping my boys get started and and uh, taking their first bears and their first moose and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, there've been a ton of uh, ton of things that were really rewarding and. Uh, and you gloss over things like some guy point a gun up your nose or having your arm about to fall off. <laughs> yeah, man, I can't. Oh, I can't imagine some of the some of the wild things <laughs> that happen on the sticks. But sounds like you played your sounds but, uh, like you played your cards right. Yeah, and kept well, it and cool it, but there. then when it started getting so it wasn't as much fun anymore, I you know sat down and waxed philosophical with myself and said, "Well, I've never been uh, chewed on by a brown bear. I've never been investigated by Fish and Wildlife Protection. I've never been in a serious super cub wreck. It's yep. a good time to quit." Yeah, no, that's that's a good, good thing. And quit. when you, like you mentioned, when you've still got got time to start chipping away at your bucket list, and that yeah, when I uh, when I got ready to when I retire from the state, which is about the same time that I I well I kept my license longer than that, but I uh, but I basically didn't do a lot of guiding after that. But I I had things I wanted to do, and after making that decision, and I've been on seven african safaris i've been to new zealand and australia oh, wow. and all kinds of places yeah i got to like for the first time got to go to south africa last fall and that was a pretty it was a pretty big eye-opener for me it was fun i had a lot of fun i've gotten a little carried away with the africa stuff <laughs> <right>? <laughs> it's I, I can i can relate to how that's easy to do <laughs> You know, and it's worse now because a lot of those guys are starting to k- take credit cards. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I had a an elephant hunt booked, and uh, the permits didn't come through, and I and I didn't. Um, I know how much guides don't like to send deposits back. Yeah. So I cut a deal with the uh, with the PH to um, instead of getting my deposit for the elephant back, I would move it to a to a buffalo hunt. okay so i went over there and, and eventually shot a, uh, a buffalo and uh, for some reason decided i needed a pedestal mount of yeah. that buffalo for my house here in, in fairbanks and in, in retrospect i could have just gotten a like a prius and parked it in a corner and thrown <laughs> a eight black bear hides or a shag rug over it and it wouldn't have taken up as much space I don't know. It's, <laughs> they are really that big huh oh man i never i've never seen one up close but when, when we were over there one day we saw three bulls you know from about 500 yards away but through the binoculars they look big <laughs> they are uh, I mean, it's really cool it's a lot of fun and and um but um in retrospect i didn't need one mounted in my living room I could have just had a European mountain and been just as happy and had more money left. <laughs> well, something tells me you're not re- you're not regretting it regretting it too much. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh man, um, you know we're, we were talking a little bit beforehand. Um, brought up muzzleloader. You told me you started muzzleloader hunting mostly after after your accident and. And kind of switch yeah, over I want, to that from I wanted and, something yeah. that wasn't hunting with a centerfire rifle, but uh, it didn't require use of my left shoulder mm-hmm. like like bow hunting did. And the obvious choice was uh, was muzzleloader. Yeah. And did you do you have any preference as far as uh, 
you know, like the style of muzzle loader you like? Do you like the traditional style muzzle loaders or a flint, a pure, like a flintlock guy? <laughs> well, um, you know, muzzle loading is like um, a lot of outdoor pursuits. It uh, offers a plethora of new toys that you can buy. <laughs> yes, it does. And so I pretty much got one or two of everything. Um, but I, uh, for example, I've, I've hunted several times in Africa with a muzzle loader yeah. and, and I've used a, uh, an inline in the, in the course of doing that mm-hmm. just because it's more likely to go bang instead of yeah. when you pull the trigger. Yeah. Now, and that actually brings something I had thought about that. Um, do you, when you're hunting over in Africa with a muzzle loader, do you have to acquire powder over there? Getting, and primers getting, or caps or <laughs> getting powder is a problem in Africa. And uh, if if I'm booking an Africa hunt, I know at least a year ahead of time that I'm going. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I will. And I hunt with two or three different guys over there, and they know my eccentricities, and they know they're supposed to go someplace and go buy powder for yeah. me. And then they start looking for it a, a, a year ahead of time. But one of the things I, I learned um, about, um, and I know this sounds like I, I probably get hired by Antifa for knowing <laughs> stuff like this, but you can sneak powder into South Africa, and the way you do it is you uh, load up uh, a bunch of 416 or 458 rounds with black, with powder, black powder and just put any old bullet in there and and put it in your luggage. They see rifle cartridges all the time. They yeah. don't know what's in them. Yeah. And you can get quite a bit of black powder over there with you by you packing like... Yank and, them out? Yeah, just <laughs> yank, that, yank that projectile out and pour the powder out and uh, measure it and go interesting no i i that's pretty that's yeah he's tapping his head there <laughs> that's thinking for sure it shoot you know even if they did know that probably would technically be nothing wrong with that because it's, you know, it's very hard to get pyrodex over there oh yeah you, um, it's easier to just get go x you know black powder interesting which you know because in places as remote as this it's tougher to get the go the real black powder than yeah, it is to yeah. get the pyrodex yeah but the moral of the story is you need to know six months or a year ahead of time that they got that powder that it's there for you and so you can work up your loads with whatever they got yeah. for you instead of taking potluck when you get there. yeah that makes sense and i've kind of you know i've talked about it on the podcast before <laughs> kind of delved into this Start starting to dip my toes into the muzzle loader stuff, and it's some of these things have ways of getting their hooks into you, and then yanking so, you down the re-yanking you down the rabbit hole. <laughs> oh yeah, there's there's a there's a world of toys out there to buy for, you know, getting into turkey hunting is the same thing. Think all the toys you can buy to go turkey hunting. Well, muzzle load muzzle loading the same same way. There's just a ton of different firearms and. And accessories and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't subscribe to the, you know, it doesn't count if you didn't have buckskin shorts on when yeah. you shot it. It's just, for me, it's just just the fact that it only shoots once and your distance is, is limited. Yeah. Although, I mean, I've I killed an antelope at 100, and, a, a pronghorn antelope at 156 yards, but... Granted, nobody was more surprised than me when the <laughs> smoke cleared and the yeah. thing laid there dead. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's uh, – I've been experimenting with a little bit. I did finally get some black powder, and, you know, what I st- 
and it's just how it gets its hooks into you, I guess. I, you know, built the kit and got some Pyrodex and got a load that shoots fine. Oh, well, so, oh, you got to try real black powder. So I get some, some, you know, some 2F and it's not giving me near the velocity that the Pyrodex was. And and then, oh, well, you got to try 3F and then it shoots a little fat, you know, get it gets a little better velocity than the Pyrodex. And suppose, you know, from what I hear, that stuff ignites quite a bit easier, like in the cold and I don't know. I'm just trying to learn, but it's yeah. One of, one of the things I learned fairly early on was if you didn't worry about trying to cram so much in there, a lot of times the lighter loads are far more accurate. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And it's aside. You know, I do a lot, a lot of center fire hand loading, so it's just a little bit slower process oh, yeah. of just working yeah. up a working up a. Well, one of the, one of load. the things that captured my fancy in terms of uh, muzzle loading was the second year that i had a muzzle loader i took it to uh, southwest oregon in the in the medford area to hunt columbia blacktail deer mm-hmm. and uh one of the one of the reasons i did that was with a muzzle loader, if if you uh, if you can get a, a muzzle loader permit there and particularly if you can get a private landowner muzzleloader permit there you can hunt during the rut mm-hmm. for for big columbia blacktails and um and i had a friend down there and uh, he had access to some private land and a and a private landowner uh, permit and uh remember now this only second year i've ever had a muzzleloader in my hand i went down there and through no great woodsmanship on my part paying attention to the guy who said, sit on that stump, I'll come back and yeah. get you after dark. I sat on that stump and ended up um, taking what was, at the time, the second largest Columbia blacktail buck ever taken with a muzzleloader. Oh, wow. I said, well, man, I'm pretty hot stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to keep doing this. And of course, I've never seen one that was anywhere. I go down there fairly regularly. I've never seen one anywhere near that big. I mean, it it, it didn't just make the Long Hunter book. It made Boone and Groggett. Oh, it, wow. it was a magnificent deer. Yeah, isn't that a uh, somehow it's funny how stuff like that works sometimes, which actually probably, I don't know if it was before I had heard about you through my uncles, my uncle Tracy and Jerry, there, when I was 18, I killed a just first bear bait on my own and going out and I killed a bear that was squared right at eight foot black bear and was right at 21, I think, skull. And they had, I think, you know, they, I can't remember who it was writing for the paper back then, did article about it or just had remembered, always remembered them referencing you <laughs> like they had talked to, talked to you about it to see if it was really that big of a bear, but, um, no, I mean, I, at the time, it was the second black bear I'd ever killed, and it took it me a, a lot. <laughs> took me a lot of years to ever to to appreciate what how big that thing was because I'll probably never see another one like that in the well, back interior. in the back in the day. It was a lucky thing that your uncle Tracy was around because I was getting out of the uh, hound business. I had chased black bears with hounds yeah. for several years and your uncle Tracy decided he had to have those hounds. And so we cut some kind of deal and I ended up with a half a pocket full of money and he ended up with, with my hounds. I think he only took them out two or three times and he lost them, but it was a, <laughs> it was a good deal for me. Yeah, sure. Sounds <laughs> like it. Yeah, I remember him. How I don't know, and I don't know where he, you know, got his initial ones. I remember two of them he had was Spud and Tequila that he'd run lions with down in Colorado mm. when I was just a little kid, 
you know. But uh, yeah, that had to be quite the thing running running bears up here just because the lack of it is way different in Alaska. <laughs> I, I never thought we were going to go off on this bunny trail, but or bear trails case may be. But you know, down down in America, you you know, even if you've got GPS collars for your dogs, you can drive around the other side of the mountain with a snow machine or a truck or something and, and get a fix on them and, yep. and go after them. Up here, you can put all the collars on them you want. You still can't get to them. You can yep. fly over them with a super cub and say, oh, yeah, there they are. They got a bear up a tree or backed up to a rock or something like that. And you still got to walk out there and get them. Yeah. And so I I tried that for several years and, um, and, uh, and, and finally gave up. But um, what I found... Remember I said at one time I was tall and skinny, not yeah. tall and fat. One of the ways I stayed tall and skinny was I would just put on jeans and sneakers and try and keep within hearing of the dogs. Cool. But you didn't dump dogs on a bear track in places where there weren't trees big enough for the bears to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, you were very careful where you turned turned dogs out. No, bears, I can or they would just, you know, they would run out in the middle of Minto Flats or something, and you just gotta wait for them to come back. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know and, and people that have done that stuff down in the states probably don't. Anyone who comes up here quickly realizes the vet. You know, it's you turn them loose on the side of a road or any given road or river, and there may not be another one for several hundred miles <laughs> in oh, yeah. the direction they take yeah. off. Well, another way to uh, spectacularly fail is to uh, have them take a grizzly track. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've heard it. You know, I know. I've seen me do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I've I've heard some guys, well, it was in British Columbia before they banned the grizzly bear hunting down there. I know there were some guys doing it, but of course, you know, it could be a specific terrain or things they look for that would do like walking bays where... The, them dogs would slow that bear down enough and aggravate him enough that they could catch up to him yeah. and shoot him. But, boy, I can't imagine in a spot well, where you, you can't kind of. <laughs> I spend a lot of money feeding hounds. They In the wintertime, they eat four, five times what a sled dog does because they've got short hair. Yeah. And, they, um, you know, their basal metabolism is, is, is so uh, so high. Takes a lot to feed them to keep them warm. Um, it's just, uh, but it's so much fun. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I did some work with the fishing game. Uh, we'd start bears on baits and then run them with the dogs, and they'd tranquilize them, put collars on. I we see. were tagging some sow bears uh, back in the day when they wanted to do that. So I've, I've I've had a ball with it. And I and I really love hounds. I've you know, I've got a worthless blue tick now that lives with me. Yeah. Um and uh he chases bears sometimes but not on not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well what what do you got? You got a list there. What do you got on no, your list that no. I've missed so far? <laughs> not not much left with uh, one one story that I think I told you that um I when the COVID struck and uh, <laughs> I was still uh, fairly gullible, I stayed home and started working on a book. I've always kept journals of my hunts and my travels yeah. and that kind of stuff. So I took a bunch of those journals and tried to turn them into uh, stories. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, they were stories. I just, uh, uh, you know, got them typed up in manuscript form. And um, 
And because I, I've always thought it would be fun to, to write a book, um, it turns out it's not. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> but I had the time to do it, so I so I did some of it. And um, the uh, the uh, sort of the featured story from that book is probably something I can leave you with. And and it's and it's going to uh, going to be the title of the book as well. But I was uh, trading hunts with an Australian outfitter, mm-hmm. and I. I think I've I've been I've hunted in Australia with the guy now five or six times and he's been over here a bunch of times. I don't remember where in this process it was. I think it was the first time he was here and he wanted a caribou real bad and for some he's a, he's a black powder nut as mm-hmm. well. But he shoot, he had a forty five ninety and a forty five seventy that were uh, uh, falling block rifles with the old paper cartridges. Yeah. They weren't muzzle loaders but they were black powder. And he had actually um, uh, uh, shot a grizzly, and he was real happy with that. And he could have gone back to Australia and, and been okay, but he wanted a caribou real bad. So I I moved him, and I wasn't um, wasn't guiding him myself. I had a, a forester friend of mine that was assistant guide at the time. He was guiding him, and so they seen a bunch of caribou, including some, uh, uh, one or two nice ones on a gravel bar, and. And so there was no no sense in holding his hand all the way out there. So Glenn told the Aussie, whose name is Dan, said, Dan, you just go down there and stalk them caribou, and when you make one dead, I'll come help you pack it. <laughs> and so uh, Glenn stayed up on the bank with his binoculars, and Dan sneaks up to within 100 yards of his caribou, and he waits till that um, that one turns. And I don't, I don't know where he hit it. It's, it's not important, but uh, what's important is he didn't kill it. And that caribou could have staggered in any one of 360 degrees it happened to stagger towards dan or as he put it he charged me (laughs) and so the caribou was staggering along the gravel bar in dan's general direction and dan has the the 45 uh, 70 uh uh, reloaded. He's put another one of them paper cartridges on, but he don't know what to do because he's got a, just a head-on shot, and the thing just keeps on coming. Yeah, and so he stands his ground in, um, and he's holding the muzzle loader out in front of him, uh, at, you know, from the hip, and the the caribou actually bumped the end of the <laughs> barrel. And at which point Dan said, well, shit, I got to do something. I might as well mash the trigger. And the um, the projectile went in just at the top of the sternum and came out uh, uh, back by his whizzer someplace, went into the gravel bar, hit a river rock, and fragmented the rock. And the rock went up in the air, came down a piece of the rock, hit Dan right on the top of the head, and knocked him out. Oh, man. So... Dan wakes up. He is rocked back onto his butt by this. He wakes up with his rifle across his knees, a dead caribou at his feet, and blood running down his face. And he doesn't know what went wrong. He doesn't have any idea what happened, only that this caribou was, like, really close. And so Glenn comes racing down off the riverbank, races up to him, and he, and he says, Danny, what have you done? And uh, Dan says, I think I shot myself. (laughs) 
Glenn, oh, man, we don't have a radio. We got no way to get you out of here. Now, what, you know, I don't know what to do next. And, and so Dan's mopping the blood and getting it out of his eyes and everything. And, and Glenn goes off the other end of Gravel Bar, just walking in circles, trying to figure out what he's going to do because he's out of good ideas. And he looks back, and, and Dan is kicking the caribou. <laughs> And um, and so he shouts to him again. So what are you doing now? And Dan uttered the immortal words that are going to be the title of this book. He said, "Me caribou's on fire." <laughs> and there's enough unburned powder came out the end of that muzzle that ignited those big white hairs yep. <laughs> on the on that caribou's uh, neck, and um, and he needed to put it out. <laughs> Oh man! Well, I I definitely want a copy as soon as they're <laughs> as soon as they're ready. We'll have a book. We'll have a book club. <laughs> no, I think that that's awesome, and and you know, a for for you to keep like the journals of of stuff like that to keep those stories. There's so many stories that just get you know are just gone forever, and it's and it's well even even as I mean I'm a master bullshitter, but <laughs> there are even even things that even I forget. And I'm going back through these um, through these journals, and I'm just having a grand time. Some of them I haven't I haven't looked at them for twenty or 30, yeah. 30 years. Wow! And um, and I'm and I'm going through them, and I'm really enjoying that part of it. Getting it all typed up's pain in the ass, but reading the the and rereading the uh, yeah. journals after all those years is I bet a, it a lot of lot of fun. Sparks a lot of memories. Oh you know? man! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. Um, totally serious i want to copy him <laughs> when it's even if even if i got a proofread a pre-copy well even if i embellish it a little yep no. embellish embellishment is just fine of a of a oh i don't know what i'm trying to say i'm trying to say something polite without calling you, calling you old. <laughs> but anyway yeah pete well man i really appreciate you coming over and i think we left a lot of still a lot of stuff i was hoping i was hoping that that Frank Schultz and Nick could come over this time. We'll have to get you over here and get the beer flowing a little bit. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it. Get and, some get some meat to eat and something to drink, and uh, we'll we'll have a campfire. And because, as you might imagine, I got a million of them. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm counting on. I need. I need. I need guys like you to carry me. <laughs> but all right, Pete. Well, appreciate it, and uh, and. Till next time, don't let the COVID get you. Those was just first words out of his mouth when he answered the phone. Well, the COVID hasn't gotten me, so I guess I'm doing okay. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. And if you if you enjoy Tundra Talk, appreciate it if you leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And if you have any comments or questions, or want to reserve a pre a pre sale copy at a at a at a price TBD of, uh, of Pete's book, you can email podcast at thundertalkak.com. Thanks.